Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm joined today by Zani Sunshine, founder of Off Grid Homestead Fam, where she teaches about life off grid, survival, and preparedness. Now, after 10 years of intense research in 2020, she and her family left Atlanta, where she was a registered nurse, and they moved to New Mexico to create an off grid homestead from the ground up on 25 acres of land. I'm so fascinated by this. Her book is called Beginner Survival and Prepping Manual. And you can find out more about that at offgridhomesteadfam.com. We'll also put the link in the podcast notes as well. But uh, first of all, Zani, welcome to Motivational Money. Thank I mean, you. Mondays. You so me. <laughs> I said motivational money, but yeah. that, that might have been subliminal. We might be trying to summon some money in. But yes, yes, welcome to Motivational Mondays. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I want to start by talking about, well, in general, people don't really know what off-grid means. So I want to just first tap into that. But then I want to also touch into your own personal experience and story about what made you uh, uproot from Atlanta, which is, of course, a big major city, and then opt for more of a, I guess, if you would say, a a rural uh, off-grid life. So uh, first, what's your definition of off-grid? So off-grid means not being connected to public or municipal utilities, but there are so many misconceptions about off-grid. A lot of people think that you're running from the government (laughs) or that you have no technology and that you're not paying taxes and you don't work, but it just means that you're not connected to municipal utilities and you're supplying your own water, electricity, and managing your own sewage. Mm, Yeah, and I think that's important because even me, I had the misconception. I was like, you know, I I had the idea idea of like what I see on reality shows. And when I hear about like people who live off grid or people who are like uh, uh, doing like the preparation stuff, I just literally, I just think of like white people in Alaska right. <laughs> with beards. Like that's what I exactly. think. Of. So exactly. when your publicist pitched you to us, I was like, oh my gosh, this is very different aesthetically, which I thought was amazing because as I read more about your uh I guess your your story and the things you identify, people of color and marginalized groups should really, really take heed. Now, talk a little bit about that. And I want to talk about the points you make about Hurricane Katrina and Flint, Michigan. Those were two very specific things that stood out. Mm hmm. So in terms of, you know, prepping and being prepared for natural disasters or any possibility of things that may come, even job loss is different than off grid. Mm. But most off grid people started as preppers because they thought that either there was going to be an apocalyptic event or there was going to be a religious event or society was going to crumble or even just natural disasters. Just it's, it's about wanting to be prepared and having more control over your basic necessities, basically. 
And most people are not prepared because I found that most people are in denial. They have that, that could never be me mindset in terms of lots of different things. So most people don't even have like three, four days worth of food and water in their house, Yeah, let yeah. alone a week, two weeks, three months, which mm -hmm. you should have, Yeah, you know? So it's, I just want to get everybody to think about it, you know, and start doing a little bit of prepping at a time. Yeah, that's really important because I, I was just thinking about maybe a year ago, I had just gone to the grocery store and it was like really late at night and my freezer, the whole refrigerator just like just broke. And that was with like $300 worth of food in there, meats and everything. And I ended up, I had no option because everything was closed. By morning, all this food would have been rotten. Freezer wasn't going to hold it all up. So I ended up giving it all away, luckily, to like the girl at my front desk she okay. she hit the lottery that night with her groceries okay let's just say but it made me think what happens if the entire state loses electricity and they all have you know food that spoils and so when it comes to that kind of preparation what are some of the things that you know people can do in those instances to to be prepared well i suggest everybody have a generator because um, not just the food, but you remember what happened with that deep freeze in Texas? Mm, yeah, yeah. And there were people who died yep, because they could, not, they could not stay warm. Right. So everybody needs to have a generator with gas available so that they can stay warm, so they can keep their food refrigerated or do any, you know, charge their phones and their devices. Mm -hmm. Because we have become so reliant that we don't even think about the possibilities of how much we would not be able to do if we just didn't have the simple thing such as electricity. Yeah. So what I tell people is if the grid went down, you wouldn't buy, be able to get cash out of the bank. You wouldn't be able to buy food. You wouldn't be able to get gas. You wouldn't be able to go to any store mm. because everybody has cash registers that operate off the internet and electricity. So it would be complete pandemonium after 24 hours of no electricity in most places. Yeah. And we also talked about, well, you talk about a lot in your, your YouTube videos that I love. They were really great regarding the misconceptions of this off-grid living. And we just talked about that a little bit with my <laughs> perceptions of, uh, of people who what I thought were just like maybe just doomsday preppers, which is kind of what gets more um, sensationalized with the whole thing. But by a practical means, uh, I thought solar power is a, is a prime example, right? Of people who may be opting to live off the grid, so to speak. Right. And has been now put to a more practical use. I mean, so is that something that's, that you would consider also like off the grid when they, people have solar power? If they have solar power and they're still connected to the electrical grid, then they're not off grid. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's some people who have a hybrid where if the electricity goes out, their solar can kick in. Mm. Gotcha. But being off grid is you're not connected at all to anything. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So I happen to live in a home where I'm, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure I have to ask my partner because I'm mm -hmm. like bad with that stuff, but I have a completely solar electricity if i'm not mistaken so the entire roof is like solar panels and okay. and and um you know like the electric bill is like really inexpensive because of <laughs> just the whole purpose and when i compare that to an actual electric bill it's astronomically low but then in that case solar powers cost a lot so i bring that up to say you also mentioned people think that off the grid living is like, oh, I'm just going to go in the woods and p pitch a tent and eat some berries and bark. <laughs> you know. And there's a whole other level of sophistication with off grid living. So 
talk a little bit about how, you know, you can be right within an actual community of other homes and still be off the grid. Definitely, definitely. But I think a lot of people think that off-grid living is cheap, mm. that you don't have to have any money to do it. Some people think that when you're living off-grid, you're squatting on land. You just go and find land and start building. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to be, make sure that your basic necessities are taken care of, which is food, water, sanitation, and housing, right? Those things are not cheap. Even though solar is cheap on a monthly level, it's very expensive to install mm -hmm. a solar system, you know? <laughs> you know? And it's also very system uh, expensive to install a septic system, you know? And if you're going to supply your own water, you have to either have a well, you're doing rainwater catchment, or you have a naturally flowing body of water on your land. So it's very expensive and time consuming to set all of those things up. Um, and a lot of people go into this without doing that. And they end up creating a bad, hard lifestyle for themselves. Yes. And also you talk about illegalities too. I mean, there's, there's certain legal parameters that you have to, in certain communities, adhere to. So you can't just be like, well, I'm going to be off the grid. And you're in the middle of like a state that has all these regulations that you have to connect to their, their grids. Right. So right. that's also, yeah. yeah. Wow. So you have to count, you have to check with the counties and make sure it's legal because a lot of places it's not legal. And then you'll hear stories of people, of, of people getting their land taken and people are like, oh, they're going to come take your land. I'm saying, no, they, they took their land because they were not following the rules, the guidelines and the codes of wherever they live. Yeah. Yeah. And even in your instances, like I mentioned in the intro, you took 10 years to research before you actually moved from Atlanta and went to New Mexico. And I mean, and 25 acres of land, that sounds stunning. That's so much land. A lot of land. But what was your personal motivation for doing that, though? So I always felt like society is going to fall at at some point. What is the saying? No great empire lasts forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and with everything that's been going on, even before the pandemic, I just felt like something may happen that I need to be in a position to protect my family and to provide for my family. And being as dependent as we are on the powers that be, because a lot of people don't even think about your food, your water, you know, electricity and everything. You have absolutely no control over it when you're on the grid, you know? So if there's a boil water advisory, you can't drink your water unless you boil it. I mean, there's just so many levels and factors to it that I wanted full control over my own survival. No matter what happened around me, that we would be okay. Wow. And so you raise animals as well? Mm-hmm. Right now we just have chickens because we have to put our fencing up to get some sheep okay. and some goats. Wow. And from that, you'll be producing everything from, you know, dairy products as well as your meats. I mean, you'll be doing everything self-sustained. We are not trying to be 100% self-sufficient. Okay. That's too, that's too hard. That's too much work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we will be about 90% self-sufficient with the ability to be 100% if we had to. Mm. But it's like, I never had the, the vision of never going to the store again or sewing my own clothes right, or anything right. like that. It wasn't that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that deep for me. You know, I just want to have the ability to do that if, if we had to. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's again, it brings me back to the government thing you just mentioned because, and not to get into a political, you know, topic on that, but again, when we are so reliant on the government or for like federal programming to get food to the grocery stores, to get our water to come through our, our faucets, et cetera, 
that same sort of expectancy is there when there's a disaster. And what you talked about with the Katrina and the Flint, Michigan, and you mentioned like one of the, I, th- I forgot what oil, big oil spill you mentioned does all as well. There was an expectancy that the government would come in quickly and help people and be and save, and you. save you, right? And Katrina is a prime example of how terribly wrong that can go. Yeah. Yep. And so do you believe that if people had been more aware of some of the things you talked about in your book, they could have sustained themselves in those instances? Uh, sure. If their house wasn't completely underwater, they could have, right, right. you know, but if they would have had three months worth of food and water and, you know, just general emergency supplies, they definitely could have sustained longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, most people don't think about it. So I want to ask you a question. How long do you think you could go right now with the food and water that you currently have in your house? Gosh, since we're two big guys living in here, uh, <laughs> it's probably going to be about maybe a week max, quite honestly, maybe. And that's, you know, with really conscious rationing, right, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Cause a lot of it's frozen. So mm-hmm. there's that practicality. So I would say maybe a week if I want to, you know, be <laughs> really, really lucky about it. That's not a long time. Not a long time. That's not a long time at all. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I'm pushing people. And it's simple, as simple as keeping dried beans and keeping rice in large quantities. And it's it's not that hard. It may not be something that you really want to eat, but it's going to keep you alive and it's going to keep you fed, mm, you know? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when I first moved out on my own to New York City and my mom was like, baby, I always keep some potatoes and some noodles or, you know, whatever. Of course, you still have to add water and boil them. And But yeah, but you're right. There are things, there are foods that are at least going to potentially sustain you until, God forbid, you're rescued or something, you know, um, in, a, in a crisis. And you talk about different situations. You talk about fire, natural disasters, and you talk about technology. Well, we just sort of like the technology grids, but when it comes to also things like identity theft, Yep. Being prepared for that. So how in that way does being prepared, uh, like what are the preparations that can kind of help you there? So we need to be backing everything up in multiple ways. You know, we can't trust the cloud for everything Mm. because what if the cloud is hacked and then all of our information is either leaked or all of our pictures, all of our important documents, everything is gone, you know? So it's better to have at least one little USB or a backup hard drive with all of the important stuff from your computer on there. Because if something happens to your computer and the cloud, then a lot of your stuff is gone. Yeah, no, that is true. And you're so right. I mean, you know, we don't think about the cloud in general. It's not something you can see. It's just, you know, it's there. And um, and I know just from like regular occurrences where I think I have a document stored and can't find it. So let alone if the whole cloud is just inaccessible, where's my stuff? You know, it's really, I mean, you may like the book made me think a lot about all we take for granted, quite honestly. And, um, and it made me realize how unprepared I am. I mean, I really was reading your, those pages, like we're kind of like sitting ducks, (laughs) you know, and it's an unsettling feeling. Once you really realize that when you mentioned 90% off the grid and 10% on just in case you have to connect, that's still a very significant amount of self-sufficiency. I mean, you went and bought 25 acres of land or whatever. So that's a very different situation. But how does a person practically here be as potentially off the grid as they can be without being as 
and I guess as in depth as you were, where you literally uprooted. Right. So you you can be self sustain. You can be more self sufficient in the city, especially if you have a house. You can get rain barrels, depending on if it's legal where you are, and collect the rainwater because it's not legal everywhere, or there are restrictions on how much water that you can collect. Hmm. You can get backyard chickens if you have a backyard and you you live in a place where they allow yeah, that. Yeah. You know. There's- there's lots of different things that you can do, but it's very it's very much a conscious effort to make it happen and to do it. And it's funny that you said um, my book made you think about how you're not prepared. I've had people tell me that my book was very triggering to them. Yeah, because <laughs> I was really like going, I mean, it had me looking around going, damn, I, I'm not really ready for the next, like you bring up the pandemic. That was a prime example. I mean, you saw people fleeing the normal construct that we are all used to because it was collapsing, right? So I think we can just look to that and see, well, you're not very off the mark at all about <laughs> about that. People wanted to get away from each other. They were trying to get into spaces where they're not breathing on each other. It was really mm-hmm. the prime example. And and how the grocery stores, when, when the pandemic first broke, how, you know, they were running out of things. You weren't sure if you were going to be able to get the things you yeah, need, yeah. you know? Well, that's a whole nother aspect of it. Not just being away from people, but being able to get the things that you need to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really um, a little intense. I remember like just thinking this pandemic was really unexpected, obviously, and it was really intense. And I thought, I think the biggest thing I'd had seen, I'd seen in my life, that was uh, something to do with sickness mm-hmm. and, and, and health. And then there's speculation that there could always be something even bigger after that which is really, really, you know, terrifying. So I'm going to have to give me some of that land in New Mexico or something because I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But the thing is, you don't need 25 acres. The only reason why we got so much land is because it was so incredibly cheap. It's not as cheap now, but it was so cheap. A small family, one acre, they can grow more than enough food. Five acres, really, even if you have a pretty, you know, decent sized family on five acres, you can put three or four houses and have animals and grow food. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you need 20 plus acres. And I've had a lot of people who want to do this lifestyle, but they haven't because they think they need a large amount of acres and they don't have the money for it. And then they don't even know how much an acre is, (laughs) you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause that's a lot, but yeah, most of us don't, we just know it's a big space, but what is an acre? But yeah, one acre is a lot. It is a football field without the end zones. That's one acre. That's one and acre. You have 25 of them. <laughs> oh my gosh. But we're never going to use, even though we, we are leaving this land to at least 10 plus children. Mm-hmm. So it will be used hopefully at some point, but we could never fully use the 25 acres. You see what I'm saying? So you don't really need that much. But you know, you do make me wonder though, if there are other places now in the world where people perhaps should look to other countries maybe and where there might be inexpensive land available. I mean, I know for a few years back, Costa Rica had a lot of attractions for people moving and building homes there. And they were in a very similar situation. It was inexpensive. They could buy lots of land. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so, and I love too, as a woman of color, that you are leaving generational wealth to your children, yes. which is a whole other show. <laughs> You know, yeah, but that's so, and it's not even generational wealth. I don't want them to have to participate in the rat race Mm. if they don't want to, you know, because it's not meant for everybody. 
doing the nine to five, you know, hustling, you know, it's not for everybody. Yeah. Everybody mentally cannot survive in our society the way it's set up. So I wanted my children and my nieces and nephews that if they didn't want to participate in that, they would have a safe place to come where, yes, they would have to work to provide for all their necessities, but they wouldn't have to have a nine to five and do all yeah. that. Yeah. You know, Zani, it's amazing you say that because, and I, I never want to talk about the pandemic uh, as a as a positive in any way, shape or form, mm -hmm. because it, if so many people, including me, I lost people during that time. Right. But I believe that every now and then society, life gives you a seismic shift for some reason, and you have to reevaluate and change. And that's what we just talked about, how the pandemic did that. I remember thinking how I'm fully remote in, in this current situation. And I now looking back prior to the pandemic, all of the past jobs I've had, the hour and a half commute on the train in the morning, the hour and a half going back from sometimes falling asleep in the car on the highway. I couldn't, I mean, really, it was dangerous, but you're tired after a 12 hour day. And it made me really realize that there is, um, I, I'm not sure how long that was sustainable for me. I was like, this is killing me, that kind of lifestyle. So, you know, you're really spot on with that. It was like, I didn't know how long I was able to do that, you know. So I have depression. I've had depression most of my life. And that's part of the reason, that's one of the reasons that I felt like I had to get out of it because I'm like, I'm 42 now, but I'm like, I couldn't do this for another 23 years, you know, being a nurse in the city yeah, yeah. and just working all the time and, you know, being stressed. And I wasn't going to be able to mentally handle that for that many more years. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I needed an out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up, too, because and thank you for sharing that, because that's a very common denominator for so many people depression, undiagnosed and diagnosed, and so much of the life that we are living in many cases, it, it, it compounds and uh, it makes the problem worse. And so you talk about evaluating. Yes, because I think so many people are depressed because there's unrealistic expectations of us in this society completely unrealistic to be able to keep up with all the bills and remember this and do that and take care of the children and go to work and try to have a personal life and try to feel spiritually and mentally fulfilled and happy. It's just not realistic the way our society runs for most people to be able to do all of those things. Mm, right. And, and maintain some sense of, of being grounded or sanity or whatever balance. Right. Exactly. And I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because one of the main things I want, I knew was one of your main talking points is about evaluating what type of lifestyle you want and uh, not what is expected of you, but what makes your spirit feel full. So is that what this experience has done for you? Oh, definitely. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And, you know, they always talk about the difference between the past generations and the millennials and, and Generation Z and how we're so touchy-feely and we're more about fulfillment. And I was talking to my sister the other day and our parents' generation, you went to school with for whatever was going to make you the most money, not what you liked, not that what was going to make you happy. Everything was about making the most money. And we have come to realize that money is not the thing that is going to make us feel good and happy and fulfilled. So that should not be what we are basing our future on, what we're basing our path on. It should be about what is going to make me feel good when I wake up in the morning? What's not going to make me feel stressed and depressed and crazy and make me feel like I need a vacation every month because I have to get away from what is my reality, you know? So it's, it's just, we have to reevaluate just 
the expectations. Yes, yes. The expectations, because we, we've seen plenty of rich people who are unhappy, who are addicted to something, who commit suicide. So money is not the answer <laughs> at all. There's, there's a whole wealth of things, but money definitely is not the answer. Right. If you're always constantly pursuing that and chasing after that, you never have enough of it. Right. So never it's always like a rat race. Yeah. And um, it's kind of funny, too, because that's come up a bit in the past few episodes I've done of Motivational Mondays with, with guests who've said the exact same thing about chasing money. And I've shared this story. I know my listeners and watchers are probably sick of hearing it, but I have to share it with you because it's kind of funny. So I was like in the second grade and, you know, the teachers are always saying to the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, little Sally wants to be a ballerina. Little Johnny wants to be a cop. And she got to me and I said, I want to be an undertaker. And she was like, you know, wait, you know, like right. what? Like, I didn't know what that was. I'm, and I really didn't know what it was. But my Uncle Paul was an undertaker and he had made a really good living at it. I had no idea what it meant. But I just always right. say, Uncle Paul got a good job. He an undertaker. Uncle Paul got a good job. So second grade. I went, And then when I got right. older and realized <laughs> that I told my teacher at, you know, second grade, I wanted to work with dead bodies. Of course, she was concerned. Mm-hmm. But that was because I was already being programmed that you go for the money and that's like from the time you're a child, you're, you're already programmed that that's what you chase. And it's no wonder you, so many of us are burned out by the time we turn 25 or 30. Yeah, Yeah, really. Right. I mean, 30 years old, I was like really, really reevaluating everything. And I'm like, I'm too young to be reevaluating everything, but yeah. So I have a, my oldest son is 20 and he's in college right now. And I kept trying to tell him, you don't have to go to college, baby. You can do whatever you want to do. You can do what makes you happy. You can do a trade when you get out of high school. So until you figure out what you want to do, at least you'll have a skill and you'll have good income. And he was like, no, I feel like I have to go to college to be successful, to do what, you know, even though I have told him his entire life that he didn't have to do that. And now that he's 20 and he's in college, he's like, maybe you were right. Because I don't know exactly what I want to do with myself for the rest of my life. Yes, And I'm spending all of this time and I don't know if this is what's going to make me successful and happy. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mama tried to tell you, baby. Yeah. Well, it's really true, though, because I I subscribe to the idea that you should maybe get into the world a little bit and figure out what you like because, you know, you don't know at 18 what your what your wait, interests wait, wait. are. But you have to figure out who you are first. Right. That part. Like, start with that. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, I mean, yes. And that's like in itself, probably sometimes like a 10 year, 15, <laughs> 15 year journey. Um, right. I went to college at 36. That's how long it took okay. me to really, you know, I was just an artist in New York City. I'm like, I'm going to be the next Michael Jackson. And after a while, that didn't happen. And I was still making like, you know, $10 an hour and as a as I was approaching 40, you know, and that just was not sustainable for the life I wanted. So I had to completely, you know, evaluate. But you're right. Along the way, I was learning who I was, what I knew, what I wanted to become. And so that's very important. And that brings me to another point that you bring up too, which is about the importance of planning in general, Mm -hmm. Um, making a 10-year plan because that's what you did. So what does that 10-year plan look like? I always encourage people to first make a vision board because that's the easiest thing. You don't have to write anything out. You just kind of figure out what do I want my life to look like? What, what kind of house do I want? Or do I not want a house? Or do I want to be by the beach? Or do I want animals? Or just whatever you envision, 
actually thinking about it, going to Google, typing in that thing, finding an image that matches it, printing it out and putting it on a board. Hmm. That's like the first step because you have to figure out, okay, what do I really want? How do I see it? And then you can figure out, break down the steps it's going to take to get there. Absolutely. Wonderful, wonderful advice. Like I mentioned before, I was looking forward to this conversation like all week to talk to you because it made me really think. And I hope that everyone who listens and watches uh, also will will think about the things you've mentioned today. And if they want to learn more, I want to make sure I send them to your website, which is offgridhomesteadfam.com. And the book is Beginner's Survival and Prepping Manual. So uh, yes. just thank you so much for being here today, Zani. We really appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.